as I mentioned earlier, and as we talked about a little bit at the beginning of the service, today is uh, a day that's called Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, Transfiguration Sunday always falls on the uh, last Sunday of the year prior to the beginning of Lent, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, uh, starts this Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. And uh, what, it's, it's basically a day where we recall a specific incident in the Bible where Jesus is transfigured uh, in the presence of three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. Now, I know for most of us that word, transfigured or transfiguration, is a strange, weird word. So uh, basically, it just means, transfigured means to be transformed in appearance. In this case, it, it's, it's, it's Jesus' physical appearance, appearance. Uh, to be transformed in his appearance into a more beautiful or a more spiritual state. So when, I, when you talk about that word transfigured or, or transfiguration, that's what that word means. And it actually appears, the story of Jesus' transfiguration appears three times in the Bible. It appears in Matthew, it appears in Mark, and it appears in Luke. And the scripture we're going to take a look at this morning is a story from, uh, from Mark's gospel. But I will probably elude... Um, at several times during the sermon to uh, other portions of the Luke gospel, the Luke story, and the Matthew story, because each of these stories, uh, each of these stories of the transfiguration, they're all the same, but the Matthew, Mark, and Luke version, they're, they're a little bit different. Some of them include different details and uh, variations, slight details and slight variations maybe that the others don't. Uh, so let's take a look at the, at the uh, gospel of Mark. It's coming from chapter 9. We're going to read verses 2 through 9. I'm going to ask you guys to do something I haven't asked you guys to do in three years. If y'all will, let's stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. <clears throat> so Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up uh, to a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling bright, such as no one on earth could brighten them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who was talking with Jesus. <clears throat> and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thank you. Y'all can, can have a seat. So there's, there's two things that I want to draw out of these scriptures on Mark's story of the transfiguration of Jesus. And the first one is, uh, is the way that Jesus and the other disciples kind of respond to this, this crazy event, you know, that's kind of unfolding on them. So verse 5, can you go back to verse 5 where verse 5 is, Benita? So as this thing is unfolding, as these events are transpiring in front of, in, in front of these three disciples, verse 5 says that uh, this, was, this was Peter's response to this thing. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is a good thing for us to be here. Let us set up three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now let me ask y'all, isn't, kind of isn't that kind of a weird thing for Peter to say at this point? I mean, you know, he's up here, he's on top of this mountain with Jesus, and all of a sudden he's hanging out with Moses, and he's hanging out with Elijah. The Old Testament Moses and the Old Testament Elijah, 
the guys who have been dead for, for centuries. They watch Jesus, you know, literally being transformed in his physical appearance, uh, probably to the point where he's not recognizable by them. The Bible describes it as a, as a dazzling, describes him as a dazzling bright figure. Luke's version of the transfiguration says that Jesus' face literally changed and that his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So at this time, the best thing that Peter can come, with, come up with is, hey, let me set up a tent for you guys. Maybe some shelter. Even verse 6, even verse 6 recognizes Peter's weird response here, his, uh, this kind of senseless statement, because it says he did not know what to say, for he was terrified. In other words, y'all overlook Peter. He's kind of he's scared right now. He doesn't really know what to say, and that's the best that he can come up with in the moment, right? We've probably all had similar situations to that. We didn't know what to say. I know I do. Uh, but Peter's fears, you know, as scared as he was at that point, I doubt, seriously doubt, that his fears were alleviated anymore when all of a sudden this cloud appears, and literally from the cloud comes the voice of God, right? Uh, so again, at this point, we go, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to Luke's gospel, Luke's version of this story. He says they were all utterly terrified, right? As, we can, as we, I'm sure we can all imagine, they were all utterly terrified. I, I suspect we all would be if we were placed in this situation. <clears throat> but as we read a little bit further, because Jesus is Jesus, because he is who he is, he becomes the disciple's source of comfort in this moment. He understands their fear. Matthew's version of this story says that Christ actually approaches the three disciples and he places his hands on them. He touches them. There's physical touch. There's, there's an intimacy about this moment when Christ recognizes the fear and he understands where it's coming from and he approaches them. There's physical intimacy with them and he says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So that's the first thing that jumps out to me in these scriptures. It's Christ saying, do not be afraid. Because, you know, too often, church, I think that because of what we have been taught, maybe the way we've been taught, we kind of have an instinct sometimes to want to hide from God. Kind of like Adam and Eve did in the, in the, in the Garden of Eden after they'd eaten the fruit. We kind of, we have been taught to tremble in horror, and to tremble in terror because God is just watching us, right? He's just, he's, he's just waiting for us to mess up. Because there's nothing that God loves to do more than dish out some divine punishment, right? In that version of God, in that version of the nature of God, God basically is made out to be like a cosmic Santa Claus. Making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. You better hope that you're not on that naughty list. Well, Jesus says, don't be afraid. If you guys remember the story of the angel Gabriel coming to Mary prior to the birth of Jesus, what did the angel say to Mary? The angel said, don't be afraid. And you can find similar stories like this throughout the Bible where people are terrified when they come face to face with the divine. They're, they're overcome with fear and terror, really is a better word for it. And in every instance, there's this, there's, there's this statement, do not be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of God, church. That's what I'm getting at. As a matter of fact, doesn't God, God does not want us to be afraid of him at all. 
at least not in the sense that we associate that word fear in our 20th first century English vocabulary. When we hear that word fear, fear God, it invokes feelings and emotions in us like panic, horror, dread, maybe anxiety, <clears throat> those sort of things. But this is where it's helpful, again, to understand ancient languages. We say, well, preacher Dutton, the book of Proverbs, say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Yes, it does. Thank you, my little biblical scholars. <clears throat> but again, I'm going to go back to language because this is a great example. That verse from Proverbs is a great example of how different languages and words don't always mean or don't always translate well into our 21st English understanding. <clears throat> the type of fear that's noted there in that particular verse in Proverbs, which is really, by the way, it's, more, it's, it's less about fearing God and it's more about gaining the wisdom and living out the wisdom of God. But anyway, um, it's probably that word fear in that particular context in Proverbs probably is better understood as our word for reverence. It's a deep respect. It's a deep reverence for God. And that's actually the way a lot or a number of Bible translations translate that particular proverb, that particular scripture from Proverbs. Let me give you a couple real quick. The Passion Translation puts it this way. The starting point for acquiring wisdom is to be consumed with awe as you worship Yahweh. Yahweh being another name of God. Invoking a spirit of awe in us. The Amplified Bible translates it like this. It says, the reverent fear of the Lord. In other words, that is worshiping Him and regarding Him as truly awesome is the beginning and the preeminent part of wisdom. You go all the way into the New Testament, through the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews is kind of strange. We don't, we don't have any clue who wrote Hebrews, by the way. But the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, in chapter 4, writes these words. He said, For we do not have a high priest, the high priest being Jesus. We don't have a high priest who can't empathize with our weaknesses. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy, so that we may find grace to help us in our time of need. God's not out to get us, church. If you've ever been taught that, if that's, if that's if ever been insinuated, that's wrong. God has no desire. That is not part of God's nature. He's not out to get us. We make our own beds. Don't get me wrong. We make our own beds sometimes, and we get a lie in those beds. But God's nature is not, he wouldn't have created us in the first place if that was his, his ultimate goal, was to be out to get us. It's not who God is. That's not even how God describes himself, particularly in the Old Testament scriptures. He's not out to get us. God is on your side. God is your biggest cheerleader. God is your biggest advocate. He is the biggest advocate that you will ever have in your life. God is What's our motto that we started last year? God is for you all day long. We don't have to be afraid of approaching God, no matter how bad we screwed up, no matter what place we find ourselves in life. We don't have to be afraid, not in that sense. I know my brother Kevin loves to use that word reverence. Uh, he uses it very often, and he's totally, absolutely, 100% on target with that. Revering God, respecting God, standing and worshiping in awe of the awesomeness of who God is. That's one thing, being terrified 
of God is another ball game. Don't be afraid of God, church. He is your biggest advocate all day long. The second thing I want to point out today about that scripture is the voice of God that comes out of that cloud. Really cool scene, particularly the instructions <clears throat> that he gives the disciples. And it's just a, it's just a little one-line sentence. But first off, he identifies Jesus as the Messiah. He says, this is, this is my son, the beloved. Sometimes your translation might say, this is my beloved son. He identifies who Jesus is. He identifies Jesus as the Messiah. You would think at, some, you know, at this point when they see Christ being transfigured and literally you know, being physically uh, altered in their presence and standing in the presence of these other two guys who've been dead for centuries, you would think they would have had an idea who Jesus is by now. So God makes it very, very clear. This is my son. Unfortunately, they never grasped that until after Jesus was resurrected, even after this incident. But nonetheless, Christ, God identifies Christ as who he is, as if there's any doubt in their minds, as if there's any doubt in your minds. Jesus is who he says he is. This is my beloved. This is my son. The second part of that. God says, listen to him. Y'all may remember back in the, about mid-January, I preached a sermon specifically on the idea of listening. So we're going to kind of come back to that. What does that mean as we, as, we, as we consider this verse, as we consider this scripture? That God telling us, telling the disciples, this is my son, listen to him. I want you to ask yourself that question, church. Are we... If you were here back then, if you were here several weeks ago when we talked about simply this idea of listening, if you're, you know, if you're here today, um, I want you to really consider this. I want you to meditate on this. I want you to meditate on it after you leave. Think about this. Am I listening to Jesus? Am I really hearing Jesus? Are we taking in every word, every direction? Are we taking in his every truth? I taking in his every instruction is the voice of God absolutely is the voice of Christ absolutely permeating my consciousness forming me motivating my thoughts motivating my words motivating my actions motivating the way that I choose to live my life and move throughout my daily life listen to him are we listening are we participating in a real, real listening? The kind of listening that prompts a response. Y'all get where I'm going with that? The kind of listening that prompts us to respond to Christ. Do Jesus' words motivate us to respond willingly? And dare I use this word that so many of us don't like anymore, obediently, lovingly, to the life that he calls us to. Most of y'all, 99% of you guys have, have kids, have children. Raise your hand if at some point in your life you've ever looked at your child and said, listen to me. Come on, come on. Every single person in here, right, with the exception of a couple of our younger folks. Let me ask you this. When you said this to your kids, was your expectation for them to simply hear the words that were coming out of your mouth? Or was it your hopes at the time that by them listening to you, Something would happen. A decision would be made. Maybe something would be altered. Something would be changed. Was your hope that they would simply hear some one ear and out the other? Or was it your hope when you said, listen to me, 
that your words would motivate from them some kind of positive response or some kind of action. I think at this point you get what I'm talking about. Do the words of Jesus. Does listening to Jesus. Do the instructions of Jesus prompt me when he says, listen to me. Do they prompt a positive response, an affirmative response to his calling? Listen to me. That's what discipleship, we've been talking about discipleship since my day one here, almost three years now. That's what discipleship, that's what following Jesus looks like, being a follower of Christ. Listening and responding, listening and responding, listening and responding. But let me tell you what happens a lot of times, and I'm going to bring this back full circle to this mountain thing that we're talking about. Too often, many of us want to stay. Many of us want to remain on top of that mountain. And we want to just kind of bask in the glory of God. We want to be content in accepting what Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace. Grace that does not motivate us to action. Grace that does not motivate us to a response to Christ. We want to worship Jesus. We want to accept that free ticket into the afterlife that he gives us. But we don't really want to follow him in this life. We don't want to take up our crosses. Jesus becomes our buddy. Jesus becomes our pal. Christianity becomes about me and not about Christ and certainly not about people around me. And we may very, very well, don't get me wrong, I'm not putting down worship in Christ at all. That's not, that's not what I'm getting at here. The problem is a lot of us just want to stay there. We may very, very well authentically love and authentically worship Christ, but we stop short of giving up our lives for the sake of the cross, and that is not listening to Jesus. That is not listening. That certainly is not responding to him. Our response is, just leave me up here on this mountain, God. I'm good. But Jesus took the disciples off that mountain, didn't he? They didn't stay there. They couldn't stay there. They couldn't stay there and they couldn't build shelters for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. They couldn't just hang out reminiscing on this event that they just experienced, that they just witnessed. They had a mission. They had a calling. They had a purpose. And they had work to do. It was time for them to listen and it was time for them to respond. Kevin, can y'all come on up, brother? So this is the question I kind of want to wrap this up with. Are you hanging out at the top of that mountain still? Because I know every single person here is a, is a Christian. i got no doubt of that. I know, I know every single one of you. I have no doubt about your salvation whatsoever, 100%. But I want you to ask yourself, is, am I still hanging out on top of that mountain? Am I still hanging out on top of that mountain, or have I descended and have I entered into the way and the work of Jesus, the way and the work of God's kingdom on earth? Am I content with just a little Sunday morning worship? Am I content with my security in the afterlife? Am I content with Jesus just kind of being my buddy and my pal, my personal servant, by the way? Or is Jesus truly my Lord? Is Jesus truly, truly someone, the one, that I listen to and that I follow? And again, that dare I say it, I obey without any hesitation whatsoever. 
I can't answer that one for you guys. I can answer for your salvation, I, be, I believe. <laughs> I, I, um, but as far as where you are in that walk with Christ, I can't answer that. I can't. Only you, only you know that. Only you know your mind and what's going on in your life, what motivates you, what prompts you. That's what I want you to ask yourself after over, over this next week or so. Just keep on asking yourself that. Where am I? Where am I here? On top of that mountain, or have I descended that mountain? Am I listening and am I following Jesus down that mountain? You know, uh, this is a perfect example. This is a perfect example, and I'll wrap up with this. Um, John, in John's gospel, he says that Jesus came, and I'm pretty sure I've told you guys this before. It says, John writes that Jesus came to earth full of grace and truth. He didn't say that Jesus came was even a balance of grace and truth, right? He said that Jesus was the fullness of it. He's the fullness of love. Just think of it, this is a full bottle. He's a fullness of love and grace and mercy and compassion and 100% full acceptance of us at all times. But he was also full of truth. Truth is what? Truth is followable. Truth is the truth that I am the Messiah, first and foremost. Secondly, the truth is followable. God's commandments are still, are still valid, by the way. It's hard for us to balance those two things in our lives for some reason. It's one thing I love about Methodist theology is we do a pretty good job at that. It's hard to, you know, we just went through this study of the book of Galatians, and uh, we got about halfway through it, but I think y'all got the point of it. And I talked to you guys about grace. I talked to you guys about the love of God. I talked to you guys about the sacrifice of Jesus and the, and, and, and the whole point of that, the whole point of that little series of sermons was so that you guys could get the idea fully, 100% in your head, that God not only loves you, but that God accepts you 100% no matter where you are in your life. Whether you've been sitting on a, on a church pew for 50 years, whether you're, whether, whether you're a drug, addict, a drug addicted, uh, 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 alcoholic living on the streets, your salvation rests not in you. Your salvation rests in what Christ has done for you. And what I said back then, I will stand behind 100%. You are 100% fully loved and fully accepted according to Christ, according to the book of Galatians, according to Paul, no matter where you are in life. That's the grace of the gospel. That's the grace of Jesus Christ. The truth of Jesus Christ is that you are still called to follow him. If you are blessed, if you are blessed to be alive today, a lot of people don't make it. I always refer back to the, to the thief on the cross, right? thief on the cross didn't make it. He was 100% just as saved as you guys were. He didn't have the opportunity to follow Jesus. Jesus took him on in the afterlife, just like the Bible says, that same day. He didn't have the chance that we did. We have that privilege, and we also have that call. Yes, we're 100% in good relationship with Christ, with God. We get our afterlife ticket and all that good stuff, but also we accept the call of Jesus. We ain't accepting the call of Jesus all the time, folks. And that's what Bonhoeffer, if you don't know who Bonhoeffer was, by the way, he was a, he was a Lutheran priest in Germany during the time of the Nazi reign. And he was in prison. He was eventually hanged by the, uh, by the Nazis uh, for, for, for uh, his statements, for his beliefs against, uh, against Hitler. But he based those beliefs on the Bible. He based those beliefs on the teachings of Jesus. He, 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 he was a real martyr. I don't accept cheap grace, folks, and none of, us should, none of us should do that. If we have the privilege to be alive, we have the privilege to listen to Jesus today, 
and the privilege to follow him, we need to accept that. That is a privilege that we have. But we kind of just so often want to follow Jesus to a limit. <laughs> I'm okay worshiping you. I'm okay coming here and singing some hymns. But I don't want really enough Jesus to change my life. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in my life, my, my nice, calm, subtle American life. There's the call, folks. The call is huge, and we've talked about the call before because the call calls us to everything pretty much that comes naturally to our instincts. It calls us to go against our self-will. It calls us to go against our self-preservation. It calls us to go against our self-centeredness. Everything pertaining to self is out the door if we are authentically responding to the call of Christ. And a lot of times we don't like that. We don't like that. I can't make anybody like that. And don't, I'm not by any means up, pretending that I'm some kind of perfect example of that. I'm not. Bare minimum, though, I do recognize it. And I take it seriously. Those red words of Jesus, Jesus wasn't just talking for the sake of talking. I can't believe that. I can't believe that he laid down these commands and these instructions just for the sake. Hey, I just want you guys to hear this. Don't really take it to heart or anything. I believe when Christ said, this is the commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, he actually meant for us to follow that. I think when Christ said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he wasn't just talking about... He meant it. He meant for us to follow that. We're listening. We've heard. If y'all been to church ever, you've heard the will of Christ. You've heard his instructions. Is it like the kid that's going in one ear and out the other? Or do y'all think that Christ expects a positive and affirmative response from us? To me, that's a no-brainer. To me, that's a no-brainer. Listening. Listening. 